such a great thing to be with the body of believers. I, I was talking to Stu uh, just a few moments ago. There is something indescribable about coming together with someone who loves the Lord with their whole heart. I was back there talking to Bob. You feel the same thing. When you come together with someone who's given over to the Lord and all the things that really don't matter, don't matter. And they love to be close to the Lord and close to people who love the Lord. There's such a fellowship. And we need that. We need that. We need that fellowship because we run into all sorts of other interactions that aren't anywhere near as uplifting. I'm going to put it that way. Sometimes you feel like the Lord calls on you to be a pitcher pouring out water all morning, all midday, and all night. You're to be delivering things to other people, and you go, Lord, you are my strength. Fill me up. Let me be a light, Lord, but you have to be my strength. And he has chosen to live within each of us, and we can encourage one another. I prayed a bit about what to talk about today. If I had to title this talk, I would title this talk, Jesus Change Me. I don't know if that's a popular title or not. Jesus Change Me. But it's certainly something that's very important in this hour. A lot of times as we begin our walk with the Lord, and we walk on and on with him, we can look around and go, I can see that person over there and they're in such and such a place and I've kind of dealt with that in the past. I actually think I've moved beyond that particular thing. That's good. And we look around and we go, I'm not dead sure I see anybody way far out ahead of me. Um, we're all kind of not too far from each other. I think we're doing okay. That's not God. When Jesus talked, Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He said that the idea of the Father was that we would grow in such communion with Him that we would be just like the Son. So it says in Scripture, Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, one thing that's got to be clear there is that when we start, before we get going with the Lord, we start in sin. And sin is a word we can't quit using. Um, it's popular to not use sin anymore it's or talk about wrongdoing but just talk about how we can gather together and enjoy one another. But the scripture says many verses about how we start in sin and we need to be rescued from sin. I want to go over a few of them just to hear the word again. The one we all know is in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notably, all have sinned. And then he says in Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But all of us have gone astray. In Matthew 1, 21, the uh, angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Psalms 51.5, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. And Colossians 1.13 and 14, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So the scripture goes through many, many verses to talk about you can't just say when you meet the Lord, Lord, I'm doing pretty good. Would you like to enhance my life some? That is not the way that it goes. I, there's a, a website that um, is a very good website called Covenant Eyes. And it's a Christian website to help people get off of pornography. And it has got all sorts of helps to get people off. There's a thing... It's a woman, my husband's on pornography, how can I help get off? I'm on pornography, how can I get off? And all these things it goes through and has helps, it's a very good thing. And they have some software that helps you out and everything, but they have some statistics that are alarming. Now, I don't know where you work, but I work in places that I see alarming statistics a number of times. But these things even blew my mind. Um, It turns out, that if you look at mobile devices, like our mobile phones, one out of five searches on mobile devices is for pornography. 20% of the searches on mobile devices is looking for pornography. It turns out that one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use pornography on a regular basis and are currently struggling to get off. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors. Now, this is across all denominations. 64% of Christian men, men who profess to be Christian, and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. That is almost two-thirds. Now, these are people who answer the questions... So you have to recognize a lot of people don't answer the questions. They don't want you to know. So this is from people that answer the surveys. And then this was the most bothersome one to me. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with their friends, which says that only 10% of teens have an attitude that this is wrong and we need to discourage it. And only 4% of young adults have that attitude. When God looks at what goes on, he is adamant about rescuing us from our sin. But we are adamant about saying it's not so bad. We're adamant about saying, I'm doing what everybody else does, about comparing ourselves one with another, And in John 5, 44, Jesus said, how can you worship God when you seek the praise of men rather than the praise of God? And yet that's exactly what the enemy pushes us into. And we've got to be wary that the enemy does have plans and schemes and deceptions, and he tries to push these things, and he knows what's going on. The Lord gives victory over these things, 
But only the Lord gives victory. And the Lord gives victory when we open the way for the Lord to move in our life. The Lord does not give victory when we put the Lord out to the side and say, I don't want to talk to you about that area. I don't want to talk to you about my temper. I don't want to talk to you about the times that I rise up and defend myself when I've had too much from somebody else talking at me. I don't want to talk to you about my impatience. When we don't want to talk with the Lord, the Lord cannot come in and move in that area. He comes by invitation. Now, when I was young, I was really quite concerned about my eternal destiny. And I hate to say this, but I would listen to sermons and I would go, okay, am I still going to make it? That would be my take-home at the end. I would go, all right, he talked about love. Not so bad. I love people that love me. I'm maybe not the best person loving others, but I'm at least a B-, and that's passing, and I will get into heaven. But every once in a while, the preacher really got up there and preached the scripture, not just we ought to love one another, but God wants to change you, and the way you normally live is wrong. And self-centeredness is wrong. And sin creates a slave. You are a slave. Every once in a while, you'd get a sermon like that. And I would walk out with my knees jiggling because I would go, rats, I'm failing. And so Fran I was in this church. And I would go out going, rats, I'm not this. And I know what the enemy did. He would just gradually get it to the edge of my mind. So I didn't think about that anymore. And the enemy would go, you're not going to hear a sermon like that for another four months anyway. And you didn't. And so he would get it to the side. But that's not the way that Jesus preached. And when Jesus preached, the first thing he did was to take sin head on. And the first words of Jesus, Matthew 4, 17 says, and Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every time in the Gospels that it talks about Jesus preaching, repentance is the first thing that he says. When the Tower of Siloam fell on these people and a certain number of them died, Jesus said, do you think it was because they were more profound sinners than others? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So when Jesus comes to us originally, before we're Christians, he's calling us to repent. And Celia, there is enormous resistance in us to repent. And the enemy builds up walls when we're non-Christians to keep us from repenting. And one of the things, he'll say anything, but one of the things he'll do is say, if you repent and you follow after this guy, you're giving up your life. You don't know where you're going to go. And I've shared my testimony before on this, but I'm, I think it's worth hearing. The enemy had me for at least a year when I was 16 years old on that same argument. Because what he would say to me is, Jim, who are the strong Christians that have given their life to God? And I would say, well, they're the missionaries. Because those are the people I had seen that had given their life, and we had some good ones come through my church. And those were the strongest Christians I know. And the enemy would say to me, yes, and if you give up your life, that's what's going to happen to you. God is going to send you to Borneo. And he followed that up right quickly by saying, there are huge mosquitoes and open latrines in Borneo. 
I hate huge mosquitoes, and I am very intolerant of open latrines. Just the smell of open latrines is enough to push me away. Now, I was 16, okay? But that worked for a long time. Now, I was a, I was a Sunday-going Christian. A friend knew me at that time. You know, I was an okay Christian in terms of the world. I was a fine Christian. I did plenty of Christian things. But inside, my life wasn't given to the Lord. I accommodated the Lord into my life, and I wanted to make sure I made heaven and missed hell. We had to get that straight, because you would feel so stupid in hell if you had botched that. And I knew I had to get that straight, and God and I had to have a good agreement on that. But this part about the Lord being the Lord of my life in the morning and in the noon and in the night, that's too much. That's for people going to Borneo. I can't do that. I got things to do, people to see, places to go. I've got to find a girl to marry. I've got to have a job and support somehow. I've got these things to do, all these worldly cares. Of course the Lord speaks to that. He said, seek first my kingdom, and all these other things will be supplied. The reason he said that is because we seek first all these other things and then want his kingdom to be provided. But that's not the way it works. It works the other way. You seek first his kingdom, and he takes care of doing all these things. It was a huge thing in my life to come across Hebrews 6.11, which says that we must do two things to, believe, to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. They that come unto God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. You must believe that if you try to seek God, he rewards it. If you try to seek God, if we try to seek God, there will be a voice immediately on our shoulder saying, this is futile. It'll say it in different words. Well, you've been praying for your wife to change for 10 years. You just need to quit. Quit praying for it. It doesn't work. Of course, Helen's been praying for me to change for 30 years. I'm just kidding. But I mean, no, she has. And I want her to. But what we do in life is we have these ways that we can accommodate God into the way we do things, and those are much more attractive paths. But we have to believe, independent of our skills and ability and whether we have got as much knowledge in Scripture as other people, the Lord blesses the intent of our heart. And if you seek Him, He will reward it. Now, He said you only have to believe two things, that God's there and He will reward it if you seek Him. It's not complicated. But the enemy strikes at that foundation because, John, if you believe God rewards you when you seek him, you will keep seeking him. You will keep trying to please him. And when Jesus came, he emphasized this repentance. And why did he emphasize this repentance? Because he knew that sin enslaves us. We basically, as people, do not believe that. You talk to people, they say, no, I do this, but I am in control. And this is what demons say. If you're ever in deliverance, demons are really big on who's in control. A demon will speak and say, I have this person. You cannot have them. That's the way demons talk. I was reading, a, a, listening to a testimony of somebody who'd come out of a satanic church. And you, it's hard to think that they're congregations of satanic churches, but there are. But they war with one another over who has the most power. Now, I just found that incredibly interesting. They don't get together and go, let's be together and worship Satan. They hate each other. And they war with each other over which congregation has the most power. 
Now that should not be so strange to us because that's the way that Satan was in the beginning. He said, I am going to supersede God and I am going to become God and everybody else will be underneath me. But power is a huge thing to the enemy. So he will come in and tell us, you have power over sin. You can do this when you want to. It's just you enjoy it and so you do it a lot. That's not bad. You're exercising your free will. That's the enemy. And Jesus knew that we would be enslaved, as it says in Hebrews, by the deceitfulness of sin. That sin is inherently deceitful. Your natural understanding of it is wrong. Sin is absolutely bad, and our natural understanding is to play with it rather than to hate it. Now in Hebrews 1.9, it says of Jesus that Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore God anointed him with the joy of gladness above his brethren. Why did God anoint him with the joy of gladness above his brethren? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. But the enemy will always get us into this plane of, let's talk about it, not let's hate it. Let's talk about it. Let's play with it. Let's try a little bit and see what it tastes like, and then you can make a more informed decision. Have you ever really just released and told somebody what you thought of them? You'll feel much better in the end. We know this from psychology. But we listen to the enemy because he accommodates what we want to do more than Jesus who's coming and saying, change direction. Quit doing what you're doing and come and follow me. Now, the Lord didn't just say, quit sinning. Repentance means to move from sin to following the Lord. That's why he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're to repent from what we're doing. We're to repent from what we're doing and choose to follow the king of kings. It's a change. It's not just quit what you're doing, but it's a change to something. So in, in terms of verses in the scripture, we've got to be well-grounded on how important this repentance is. In Acts 20, 21, Paul said, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 3, 2, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, a lot of times we interpret the kindness of God as, oh, he's pretty much okay with it. I don't get smashed. I mean, I'm not rich, I've got duties, but I have a decent job. I have a pretty good family, things are going okay. God's been kind to me, so he must be happy with the way I'm living my life. And Paul says, don't you recognize that God's kindness, that his forbearance is to lead you to repentance, not to put a stamp on your life and say it's okay. And that's why it's so important to catch these verses. And so, Jesus said some things we don't like to read. In Matthew 7, 12, and 13, he says, 
In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and prophets. That's good. We're okay with that one. He follows that up with, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are they who enter through it. I don't like that verse. Let's move on. Do you see? When I was young, that was one of those verses the preacher was not supposed to preach on. Because that said, where everybody is going isn't the fault the right way because everybody is going there. Because Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way in following him. So it's a checkpoint to say, if I'm doing what everybody else is doing, you need to think about what you're doing. You really need to think about what you're doing because I say we, we, we need to think about what we're doing. I use we and you interchangeably. But we need to really think about what we're doing because broad is the way that leads to destruction. You know those special times where you're sitting and talking just me and the Lord. Just me and the Lord. There's something totally different than that than when you're reading a book which tells you how to do something. But when it's just you and the Lord, you're in a whole different place. You're not talking about the Lord. You're in the throne room of the Father. And when Jesus died and the veil was ripped, he made it so we have access to that throne room. So no longer are we wandering around saying, what do you think would be a good idea to do? What do you think would be a good idea to do? And the Father's standing right there and saying, turn this way and talk to me. You see, we have access to the Father. We do not regard access to the Father as glorious, wonderful, and marvelous. We regard access to the Father as common. And this is real, real bad. If someone was to say to you, I mean, if John Ware was to come up and say, look, I've, you know, an angel visited me last night and I've got the inside scoop. God has decided that uh, people aren't giving due reverence to talking to him, so he's going to charge $10,000 a minute for prayer. All of a sudden, prayer would take on a different view. Now, God's not going to do that. But do you see, if we made charged money for it, we would say, oh, well, gosh, it must have huge value. But God made it free, where we can talk to him anytime. There are no long-distance charges, and there's no limit to how long we can talk to him. And so in our mind, we regard it as common. And sometimes we would rather talk to somebody else or read a book when the Lord is standing right next to us saying, would you turn to me and talk to me? I want to hug you and love you and for you to know me in my fullness. And you're headed out in ancillary directions. And we know that. And the Lord is calling us always to that place. That's why it said of Jesus that he would leave the disciples and go up in the hills so he could be right there with the Father. And Jesus is sending us just as he was sent. That time with the Lord is absolutely essential. That's why in, in the Psalms where it says to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The psalmist knew the difference between talking about things and complaining and dealing with the situations and sitting in a place at the shadow of the Almighty where everything's changed because we're sitting in the shadow of the Almighty. Do we believe we're sitting in the shadow of the Almighty? No, most Christians treat prayer like email. They send it off and hope they'll get a response back in a reasonable period of time. 
that'll be possibly favorable to their request. And that's the way they treat it. No, few people pray to the Lord as if the Lord is so close that he cannot be separated from our breath. He is right here. He is not out there. And this is why we have so little understanding of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, because we treat the Father and the Son in a way like they are not here wanting to be with us every minute of every day, wanting to get to know us and for us to get to know them. We treat them like they're not that way, but they are that way. And so the Lord is asking us to repent at all stages of our life and come and be with him. That's what it means to come and be with him. So broad is the way that leads to destruction. You can't look around and say, I'm as good as 80% of the people, and so I'm okay. That is not the way to work. In 2 Corinthians 17, it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So sometimes coming to the Lord, there's a sorrow before repentance comes. But sorrow produces a repentance, and it brings us close to the Lord. And a verse I think is so important. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not just that we repent, but when we repent, the Lord knows how to cleanse us top to bottom from all unrighteousness. Now, Jesus also said a verse that almost nobody ever preaches on. Matthew 5, 29, 30. If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better to you to, for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If you preach on that two weeks in a row, your church attendance will drop 50%. Do you see? Anytime we read through the scripture and go, that's a hard one, let's not talk about that. The Holy Spirit will bring you right back to that and say, it's not up to you to say that. This is the word of the Lord. Now you pray about what that means. Now, when the disciples went out to minister and were given power over demons, they came back just thrilled to Jesus and said, even the demons were subject to us. And do you know what Jesus said? If I was Jesus, this is a big stretch, but if I was Jesus, I would think he was going to be saying something like, this is just the beginning of ministry. This is what it's going to be like. This is what I told you about authority. This is what I mean about authority. Now you're getting to taste what's going to come. I'm glad that the first step went very well. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you want to rejoice, rejoice over this. Your names are written in the book of life. You see, eternal, we lose eternal perspective like that. We get caught up, I mean, Stephen and I are about this afternoon to try to go fix a shower head. Well, I don't know how to fix a shower head exactly. We're going to go on YouTube and try to learn. It's entirely possible there may be some flooding in our basement before this is over with. Okay, and so that's on my mind. 
Now, we're going to do that. We need to replace the shower head. It broke. It's got to be done. But that is not eternal. Do you see? That's replacing a shower head. Now, I'm going to be work through it. And the scripture says, whatever your task, work heartily, but not work heartily for the sake of working heartily, but work heartily as serving the Lord and not men. So whatever task we undertake, we need to put our heart into it because it's a service to the Lord. And this shower head, while well, it doesn't sound so glorious, something that we need to do, and I'm praying that the Lord will be right there with us in more ways than one. But what happens to us that is so incredibly problematic is that our vision is so limited and gets tapped down every day to be so earthly-oriented that the Scripture has to keep saying verses like in Colossians 3.1, set your eyes above where Christ is. And the reason he has to say that is that we set our eyes below. And he says again in the Scripture, for our home is not this Jerusalem that's below, but our home is the Jerusalem which is above. But we have no concept of this, but Jesus does. And Jesus knows we're only here for six or seven or eight, nine or ten decades, and then that's it. And then we're going to a place where it's altogether different and it's eternal. And he said that you have your name written in that book of life. That's what you should rejoice about. That's the thing you should see. And if you're doing something in your life that is causing you to sin, Sin leads to death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And for a Christian, the result of sin is death. Bondage and death for a Christian. And if we allow sin to be there and allow it to stay in our life, it produces death in our lives. Now, you say, well, I believe Jesus and I'm, he's my Savior and all this. That's fine. Jesus can be your Savior, but if you allow the power of sin to dwell in your life, the power of sin will dwell in your life, and it will enslave you, and it will put you to death. It happens. And so Jesus says in this verse, I want to let you know how important it is you go to the cause of what's going on and get rid of it. You know, Stu, I know you were an engineer, and John's an engineer. A lot of different groups have things called root cause analysis, where you try to figure out what's the fundamental cause of the problem. And Jesus is saying, if your hand is what causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your eye is causing you to sin, get rid of it. It is so important that you not sin, it's worth sacrificing a part of your body. It's that important. Now, you'll hear a hundred people interpret this and go, well, it didn't really mean that. What he meant was, whatever's causing you to sin, get rid of it. If you cannot handle pornography on your phone, throw your phone away. Whatever it is, take whatever action you need to sever you from sin. If you have to pray a half an hour in the morning before you go to work because there's an obnoxious person that you work with who bends you the wrong way every time you see it, Get up every morning and pray for that person 30 minutes because they're obnoxious and you're liable to snap at them unless you get the glory of God in your body before you go in there. Whatever you have to do to stop sinning, do that. Whatever you have to do to stop sinning, do that. Now, the Lord gives us great aid. 
The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, will convict us of sin. The psalmist says, Lord, search me and know me and see if there be a wicked way in me. It isn't that we've got to go around and go, crud, man, maybe I've got secret sin hiding and I don't see it. And this could be a real problem because Jim preached this sermon and gosh, what am I going to do about that? Just ask the Holy Spirit. Just like the psalmist, search me and know me. See if there's a wicked way in me. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and the Holy Spirit will bring sin in our lives up front. I sometimes ask the Holy Spirit in a special way and say, uh, I invite you into the living room and the dining room and the den and the kitchen and the closet in the basement of my life. Search me and find out if there be a wicked way in me. That helps me to say it that way. It may not make a difference to you, but I want to emphasize that closet in the corner of my basement where no one who comes to my house is to open that closet. And some of the things in that closet are 40 years old. Bad things. You invited my child over, I invited your child to my birthday party. And I had to go extra to get them in. And when your daughter had a birthday party, did I get a reciprocal invitation? No, not at all. Well, that hurt me. And when I see you, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Got to let it go. You've got to let it go. Jesus said, if you can't forgive others, the Father can't forgive you. We have to let it go. Whatever is sinful within us, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. Now, I'm looking out here. I don't think we have trouble here with murderers. Don't prove me wrong. But I think everybody in here is good on that. I think we're going to be good on adultery. I think we're going to be good on what some people would call the major sins. I don't see anybody here stealing money from a bank. You know, I think we're probably good on some of these things. And we listen to the enemy as he says, those are sins. Those are sins. And you're not doing that. That's sins. And we come down and say bitterness, resentfulness, spite, gossip. Oh, that's just what people do. Do you see? That's how the enemy portrays it. You're, that's too picky. Well, if you got into that, you would have to change so many things. You can't go down that road. We have to go down that road. Those are the sins that are killing us. Now, we feel resistance in life. I'm in some things in my life. I'm so glad I've got Helen and a number of y'all. I can feel the prayers. But I have got some resistance going on in some tough areas. Now, this is the way, Teresa, I feel about resistance. I feel like, okay, resistance. We can do that today. I'm okay with even having resistance today and tomorrow. And on a good week, I might be able to handle resistance four days in a row. That's pretty much it, Lord. Once we've been praying four days, there needs to be relief. Do you see? This praying longer than four days, I don't have the patience for. And I'm just being honest with you. If I pray fervently about something for four days, and I don't feel any sort of spiritual lift on it, I get back with the Lord and go, what is going on? We need to have a lift here. There's some people that pray for their children 35 years. The Lord is calling us to be faithful because He is the treasure hid, in, hidden in the middle of the field, and He's our sustenance, and we can't go by feelings that we have. Feelings is not the answer. Now, I like feelings. I like it when the presence of the Lord comes and you just feel something totally divine. I like it. But you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to go with you, Lord, just so I can have blessing every day. 
or we won't go more than four days without that sense of blessing. You can't do that with the Lord. In the end, the Lord is trying to get us to the place that we see He is the blessing, and it's not a feeling, and He doesn't change with our feelings. But our natural tendency is to go, if I feel good, we're good. And if I don't feel good, then something's wrong and God needs to fix that. That's what we naturally think to do. But he's trying to bring us to the place where the Lord didn't change. He's absolutely faithful. I'm seeking him. He rewards that. I don't see how this works out, but it is working out because he works all things together for good. Now, <coughs> this is tough stuff. But sin in the life of Christians is extremely serious. And Jesus said you had to take very strong measures to make sure it doesn't happen. <clears throat> and I'm serious about that thing about dealing with other people. Some people just rub you the wrong way. You know, if, if uh, somebody here was to come up to me, and I don't have a tie on today, but if, they, if I did have a tie on, they might look at me and go, wasn't that tie popular in the 1970s? That's a disparaging remark. And hope every time you tell me that, I take it personally. No, but you know. But if, if, if somebody came up to that, there's no way you could go, well, good to see you too. You know, that's not your natural response. But the Lord responded with love, mercy, and grace to his enemies, to people who were whipping him and nailing him on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That same spirit dwells within us. Now, I'm saying that, and if you're looking at your life and I'm looking at my life, I might be able to give you a few examples where that same spirit wasn't evident. And instead of the Holy Spirit coming out, there was a bit of Jim that came out and said, we've tried it your way three times. You always insist on your way. We're going to do this a different way. And frankly, I don't care whether you agree or not. Do you see that? Do you hear that spirit? And I have a tendency to listen to the enemy and say, we're at the end of patience. We've done patience. There should be patience. I did patience. And now I'm done with patience and we're moving to action. Because I've decided we finished the time for patience. Not God decided, but I decided we finished the time for patience. This is hard. But if you get the Lord involved in it, and we talked about this last time, that's where the work comes from the Lord. The Lord provides the strength to do that. That's why it says in Philippians 4, 19, he says, I can do all things not through me, but through Christ who strengthens me. But I can't do diddly squat through me. But the enemy lowers our vision and says, well, Lynn, you've been with the Lord 50 years. It's okay compared to everybody else. You're trimmed out, glorified. You've got a lot of other things working. You don't really need to focus on sin in your life. That's not what the Lord says. The Lord says that we do need to focus on this, that sin kills, and we need to do it, and that we need to repent. And in Romans 12, 9, he goes on further, and he says, let your love be genuine, abhor that which is evil, and hold fast to that which is good. Abhor, that is a strong word. Strongly hate that which is evil. We mentioned before that it said of Jesus that he hated wickedness. You don't usually think of Jesus as hating, but he does hate. He hates wickedness. 
And he told us, the scripture says, that we should abhor that which is evil. And one of the reasons it's so important, like we're talking about, is the enemy moves so strongly on us to tolerate and permit evil in our own lives and not to deal with it. Now, Jesus is the only way this will be turned around. I know all of you know that. I know you all know that that power um, is the only way to turn it around. There's a few verses, though, I do want to mention because a lot of times people aren't anchored enough in the different scripture verses, and it helps to see over and over how the Lord emphasizes this. But the dominant verse that says Jesus is the solution to that repentance and to getting rid of that sin is John 14, 6, where he says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, you might think by this time, well, that would be something so well established in the church, nobody's going to conflict with that. Not so. The work of the enemy is that Jesus is a way and that there are many other ways. And if you study world religions, they don't say Jesus didn't exist. They just say he was a good teacher. They take away that he is God. If you want to define true Christianity from all other forms of religion, it's what do you say about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God equal to the Father? If you say yes, you're a Christian. If you say anything else, doesn't matter how you qualify it, <clears throat> you don't know him because he's not divine. And you're off into another religion. And we can just go through the religions and talk about how they say it a different way. They don't say Jesus never existed. They just make him non-divine. That's what happens. Huge that the enemy pushes this. And the enemy pushes a pluralism to say, how can you be so cocky to think that your religion is the only religion when so many others across all the world are truly seeking after God? And you're telling me that their genuine efforts to find God and their pathways to God are not only inferior, but wrong and have no value. And only what you think has value. That's the enemy. It has nothing to do with what we think. It has to do with what God said. If it was up to what we think, it would be in trouble. And Jesus commented on this really hard because in Mark 7, 7 through 9, he said, Jesus said that, you have turned aside the commandment of the Lord for the doctrine of men. And then he went on to say, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of the Lord for the tradition of men. And we are. We will take what the Lord said and say, I don't really like it that way. And we mold it into a tradition that we like. And we've done that all throughout history. And that's why there had to be a holy scripture that's why there had to be an inspired word of God that's profitable for teaching and rebuke. There has to be so that we can look and see what God had to say so that we're not voting on what everybody else has to say as it changes over time. But it's very common. So the enemy makes you look like you're bigoted, you're exclusive, you don't care about other people. He paints all that way when actually the gospel is just the opposite. Instead of wasting your time and following that which is producing death, let me show you the one true way that brings life and freedom and release so that you don't have to experience death. Let me introduce you to the Son of God 
For he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Do you see? But the enemy paints it a whole nother picture. And you'd say, well, that, that's not out there. That's all over out there. That is what people talk about all the time. So the scripture says, then that Jesus is not only the only way, but there's a great verse in Acts 4.12, very important to know. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We need to know these scriptures. We need to be anchored there so when the enemy comes in, we don't pop back with our latest thought that's in our mind, but we step back with the word of God. You know, it always was important to me that everything Jesus said was the word of God. If Jesus spoke it, that was the word of God. But when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, he didn't turn to the enemy and say, my name is Jesus. You know my name is Jesus. You know I am equal with God. Every word I speak is the word of God. He quoted from the scripture every single time he was tempted. He said, it is written. And you ask somebody, did Jesus really believe in the Bible? Just read what he said. Apart from the time he said the scripture cannot be set aside. He just flat said that. But every single time he expounded the scripture on the Jericho Road, what did they say? Do you see how he opened up the scriptures to us? Jesus talked all the time about what the scriptures had to say. That Jesus believed in the Bible is unquestionable. Unquestionable. And he quoted the scriptures when he was facing the enemy rather than just speaking, which he could have and carried all the authority of God. So we need to know. We need to be able to give people not our opinion, but what the Scripture says. In John 3.36, it says, For the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is two directions. It's the Son of God or not. And those are the two choices. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Not six mediators, not a mediator for 300 to 600 A.D. and a different mediator starting in the postmodern era. None of that. There is one mediator between God and man. And the one I like is 1 John 5.12. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Scripture presents Jesus alone, distinguished and singular, as our solution, the only way that we can repent and come to the Father. Now, he is intent on this in changing us. The big play of the enemy, if he loses us to saying, you're going to let Jesus in your life, is that he does not want us to keep the door open for Jesus changing other things. Um, probably many of you have seen people, when they come to the Lord, they come to the Lord desperate. I, I like to watch, Helen will verify this, I like to watch testimonies on YouTube, CNN testimonies, 100 Huntley Street testimonies. There are some great testimonies. But 80% of them, people come to the end of their rope. They are unable to handle life, unable to do what's needed, and they come to God out of desperation. And they basically some, say something like, 
I am going to commit suicide. I'm hopeless. There's no way I can make sense out of life. I'm calling on you. If you don't help me right now, I'm probably going to commit suicide. And the Lord comes through. But he takes people where they have exhausted all of their avenues and know there's no other way there. And if God doesn't help me, there's no rescue. Now, this is true all during our life. We are very clear on it when we first come to God. If we've been wandering around in the world, we've experienced the death from sin. We have experienced the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We have seen that the lust of the flesh produces death. And you go, how could things get that bad? Things can get that bad. Things are that bad in places now. And this is why it's so urgent that when the Lord calls out in our life, we don't resist when He's saying, I want you to change. I want you to recognize that your sin isn't in some category that says, well, they had bad sins. We have bad sins. All sin is bad. When you, li- when you read in 1 Corinthians 6 and it says, you know, it says people that practice homosexuality, all these things, some of these you once were. But it says liars and thieves. It says liars. We can't categorize sins. And when we have sin in our life, it's destructive. It kills. It produces death. And the Lord is trying to change us on that. We have to be serious about it. So (laughs) this won't be the favorite talk I give, I can tell. But it's so important because we play with sin and we don't go to the Lord to get released and take us to a wonderful place. So Jesus is intent on changing us. He's intent on changing us. I just want to go through a few verses on that and then I'll be done. But he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. When you behold the Lord, that's why worship is so important. That's why that time that we enter where our minds begin to fade away and we're only focusing on Him and we behold Him, it transforms us. It changes us. When you're really in worship, it changes you. And that's one of the reasons in heaven we're going to be changed so much is because we're going to be worshiping Him. And we'll behold Him as He is because God said that when we get there that we will know as we have been known. And in John 17, 3, it says, For this is eternal life, to know the Father and the Son. And that's what we're going to know. But he says here that we're being changed into that image. And that's great. But we are being changed. <laughs> we are not there. I know everybody here can look at themselves and go, I know I'm not there. And I can say that of me. I know I'm not there. And if I don't know it, Helen will let me know. You know. So I know I'm not there. I know I need to be changed, and I need to be saying, yes, Jesus, change me. Yes, we uncovered a 30-year-old bitterness here that I've been denying. Change me. Yes, you gave me the wrong husband, Lord. I've never forgiven you for that. Change me. Or I I heard one woman say one time, it was not her first marriage. I won't go into what marriage it was. Well, I've decided that he who has no baggage is not out there. This was a woman talking. She said, I've decided that he who has no baggage is not out there. I've looked for him, but he's not out there. And so she settled on the husband that she had. (laughs) 
That was a sad story, okay? But the point of it is, the world leads you to believe, well, if you'll just find that particular spouse, if you'll just find this particular, well, you have blessing with people, that's great, but there is no life apart from Christ. Christ is life. And you'll find life in a spouse, and Christ is in them, that's a great thing, but they're not Jesus. They're not Jesus. And then he says in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, Lynn, sometimes when I think about that, I go, this is really not fair for me to think that Jesus is my brother. That's too high. I'm not at that level. I can kind of have him be my Lord, but how can you say that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren? That's kind of pulling me up to where he is. I, I'm not comfortable with that. But you see, if it was something where it was based on Jim's works and say, look what I've done. I've taken the 10 steps to Christian maturity and I've walked through each one. Now, the fifth one took me six years, but I did go through it. You know, and I've gone through the 10 steps, so now I'm at Christian maturity, and since I have my merit badge for Christian maturity, I am now a brother and can call Jesus my brother. That's not right. All that's wrong. We can't do that. But you see, God empowers and transforms us, and that's why it says in Philippians 1, 6, He who began the good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. He began the good work, he'll continue. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Both the author and the finisher. You see, the work comes from the Lord. And because we can't look at it and go, well, I'm not going to be there, you can't say that to the Lord because things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And he said, this is what I'm doing. I am making you... I'm making Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren, and that's sistren as well. And you are the brethren and the sistren that are going to be there because of what I'm doing. Well, most of us just go, well, that's aspirational, but not really going to happen. You can't do that to the Lord. That's telling the Lord what you said I disagree with, and my opinion trumps. You can't do that to the Lord, and we do it to the Lord all the time. And it's, I say, I do it to the Lord all the time. I have to horrible trouble with the verse where Jesus said, those that come after me will do the things that I do, and even greater things shall they do. Well, I'm just about 71, and I don't have that many years to start even doing what he did, much less greater things. So where's the problem? And the problem isn't with God. Do you see? And when I relook at my life and say, well... I am actually sensitive that it matters to me what some other people say. And the Lord says, I want you to talk to me about that. Get together with me about it. Is it the most important thing? Is it the only thing what I say? Now, this, this is a little sticky point, but I want to get this in. A Christian's life, our concern should be about discerning what God wants, not deciding whether we will do what God wants. And we'll say it again. Our life should be about discerning what God wants, not about deciding whether we're going to do what God wants. This is a huge transition. But most Christians are in the second category. Well, tell me what God wants. All right, let's talk about it. Well, the way I see it, it's got these pros and these cons. And that's the person who will talk about it. Some people go, I'm too busy right now to talk about it. 
and it gets put away. And as Jesus said, the enemy comes and picks it up. The word of God, you don't pay attention to it. The enemy comes and picks it up. You don't remember it again. And did it ever bother you in the Bible that God paid attention to how people responded to a message from him? I mean, if you go, um, he, it's not that he smashed people, but I mean, if you go to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, and Zechariah was in the temple, and Zechariah's a good guy. You know, I mean, the Bible goes on to say, he is really a good fellow. He has done lots of good things. The Lord looked at him and his wife in Luke 1.13. They had been holy to the Lord. Zechariah was the priest. You know, he was the last priest. Interestingly enough, Zechariah was the last priest ordained of God in the temple. And this is very interesting. You can follow it from Chronicles, but it says Abijah was before in Chronicles. It starts listing off um, it starts listing off kind of the order of the priesthood, and Abijah comes before um, Jesus. And then after that comes, um, I can't remember the pronunciation of it, but it translates to be um, uh, the family of God or the followers of God. So there's Abijah and then Jesus and the followers of God. Well, Zechariah was from the house of Abijah. So they rotated through who did things, and it was Abijah's turn. And so Zechariah was the priest. But Jesus said, up until the time of John was the law and the prophets, and since then the kingdom of God is being preached. So the Lord honored the priesthood, the old law and the prophets, up until the time of John, specifically John's father, Zechariah. So he was the end of the old priesthood, and his ministry was the last one that God recognized because up until John was the law and the prophets, and after that was Jesus. So Zechariah was a good guy. I mean, you'd, you'd hang around with him and you'd go, this guy's really good. But his wife had never had any children. She was old. Doesn't tell us how old she was, but she was old. She was way beyond having babies. So the angel came to Zechariah. Now, listen to this interchange. It says, he says that you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice over his birth. Well, first he says, do not be afraid, which is the typical angel introduction. Have you noticed? And that's because we can't handle the glory of an angel. We, and we can't. The Lord has to have them among us where we can't distinguish them from people because the glory of an angel would set everything back. We can't handle it. So he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice over his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the, father, the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make already a, a people prepared for the Lord. Now, you're Zechariah. He said, my wife who can't get pregnant is going to get pregnant. It's going to be a prophet in the order of Elijah is going to announce the Messiah, and lots of people are going to repent from what they're doing and come to God. You've got all that in 30 seconds, okay? What would you say? Well, I hate to say it, but Zechariah is five stories above what I would have said. <laughs> I won't go into what I would say, but I would have been shocked a whole lot. But Zechariah just said, how will I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, does that sound bad? It didn't sound bad to me. 
that was just Zechariah saying, you're talking miracles here. I'm going to have to explain this to my wife. Do you know how hard this will be to explain to my wife? And, you know, how, how, how will this be? And he literally just says, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and he said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. Do you hear that? Which will be fulfilled in the proper time. Does that seem harsh to you? It seemed harsh to me. Zechariah is overwhelmed. He just said, how in the world can this be? You know, and how am I going to do it? And he said, well, because you didn't believe me. Now you're not going to be able to speak, and he couldn't speak until the dedication of John the Baptist. Well, I mean, he wasn't smashed to the ground and killed. That wasn't the thing. But the Lord came to him and said, you've got the glory of an angel in front of you telling, telling you something. You know it's me. Once we know it's God, that's when we need to stop and say, okay, it's God, and we're going to do it. That's what it means to say your heart is for the Lord. It's what the Lord wants that settles it. Not what the Lord wants. We're going to evaluate the practical implementation steps and how this thing could go right and wrong and what are the influence of these steps on my life. Not that, which is the way I would approach things. But once we know it's the Lord, we're going to do it. And that's where he's trying to take us. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I only do what I hear from my Father. He doesn't say, my father and I have a discussion and go over three options and take the least damaging option. He doesn't do that. He hears from the father. The Lord is not a democracy. The Lord is the king, okay? And he's trying to get us things. So he's trying to get us to the place where our concern is, Lord, what would you have done? Now contrast that to Mary. When the angel came to Mary, and in Luke 1, 37, 38, um, Mary said, Behold, the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. A little bit different. You hear that? A little bit different. And the angel describes some pretty harrowing things. Imagine being a woman, which I can't, and being told by an angel, you're going to have a baby, but you're not going to know a man. That's complicated, very complicated. I think that Mary may have even said, I'm not sure I even understand the Holy Spirit, and you're saying the Holy Spirit's going to come upon me. What does it mean to come upon me? I'm really not getting the details of this straight. Do you see how you could ask a lot of questions? I can't project it fully, but if I was Mary, I would have at least asked six or seven questions. But Mary's heart was for the Lord. She saw God, the angel. And so she said, be it unto me as you have said. That is what the Lord is looking for in us. Be it unto me as you have said. And any place in our life where we say, well, I know it's the Lord, but we have to stop. I know it's the Lord, but you have to cut off the rest. I know it's the Lord, but that person borrowed $5,000 from me and is now pretending they never did and they want me to treat them like a friend. That's too much to handle. Can't do that. It's got to be if the Lord wants you to forgive them, that's it. And that's not aspirational. That's something Jesus asks of us. Now, he doesn't start out by asking us to save the whole United States or do something like that. He starts out with small things. 
And that's why the scripture says that Jesus said a man went away and he left ten minas and five minas and one mina with three different people. And when he came back, Jesus had very explicit words. When Jesus did that, he had very explicit words. And when he came back and described it, and this is in Luke 19, 12 through 27, Jesus said to one servant, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. I don't know exactly what a mina is. It's something a la five or ten thousand dollars, something like that. Nobody knows exactly what it is. But Jesus qualified it as something that's very little. And this is how the Lord works. Our natural mind looks at things and scales them from small to big based on what we think the impact is in our worldly situation, including relationships with other people. God scores things as, do you know it's me? When you knew it was me, did you do it? That's the way God scores. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not keep my commandments? Now, that's what the Lord is looking at. But what does he say? He says, if you're faithful in very little. Well, let me just say that I went to Jane and I said, Jane, I'm not really good at investing. That's true. And I think you may be good at investing, Jane, so I'm going to let you invest $10,000 for me. Here's $10,000. You go and do what you think is best. And she came back and earned 10% the first year. And I said, whoa, Jane, that's really good. Here's all the rest of the money I have, which is $200,000, and it's yours. Take it and do what, what first Jane would go, wait a second, I don't want that much. You know, and you can see how this would be careful. That's going from $10,000 to $200,000. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, if you're faithful in very little, like five or $10,000, I'm going to put you over 10 cities. Los Angeles, Atlanta, Miami, huge change. So what the Lord is looking for is like David. Where is your heart? If you know it's me, will you do it? If you know it's me, will you do it? And if we get past the but stage, then the Lord can take what he's put us over that's small and put us over much more and have much more influence, have much more light of the Lord come out. But we go, you just gave me a little bit. doesn't really matter what I do with a little bit because a little bit doesn't influence a lot. And God says, a little bit tells me whether you will be faithful to do what you know I want you to do. Can you see that? Our mind is totally flipped on this. God is just, where is your heart? Once you know it's me, will you do it? If it's just your sister-in-law in a difficult conversation, will you do it? If it's just somebody from your high school you've been bitter about, will you call them and talk to them? And you go, well, that doesn't matter. They've forgotten my name. The Lord's put it on your heart because the Lord says that it's important, not the perception that we have of its importance. It's because the Lord said it, it's important. And that's what he's looking for in us. That's what he had in Jesus. That's what he's looking for. So then when the Lord gets us out there, we are used to hearing the voice of the Lord. Do you see? And he works through those things. And it says in Hebrews that discernment comes by reason of use. So we get used to hearing the voice of the Lord. And we get used to knowing what he has to say. 
And then when you get out into a difficult place and you go, oh my goodness, I'm talking to the Pharaoh, you go, hey, it's all right. The Lord God is with me. And it is all right because the Lord God is with you. But if you haven't been with the Lord and you haven't known his voice and you don't know his faithfulness in small things, if the Lord puts you up in a big place, you'll faint. We'll faint. We'll all do that. So he's trying to change us. And he's saying to us, please ask me to keep changing you, and I will. I don't care where you are, he's asking you to change. Now notice how the Lord always took people in low places and put to shame people in the high places. He does that regularly. Jesus thanked the Father that he revealed it unto them and not to the wise. He thanked the Father that he did that. He's still in the habit of doing that. It's not the way the world thinks. It's the way God moves. So these things are important things to us. Very important that we as the church say, Jesus, change me. Holy Spirit, show me the areas that need to grow and move. And let me say yes to God as soon as I see it's God. Help my discernment grow so I can be used more and more of you. God's not slow. He'll move us forward as fast as, he, as we can handle it. He'll keep moving us. Lord, we acknowledge you as our Savior and the only way to the Father. You've been so good to us. I know in every heart here, we appreciate your patience with us and how many times you have just put up with us for so long. We thank you for the glory and the richness you've put in our lives, for the hope that we have because you're with us. We don't know, Lord, how to walk in this world except we put our hand in your hand. We ask that you change us, each one, so our heart loves you altogether with everything that we have and that we desire naturally to do what you want us to do, that you be glorified. We talk about these things, Lord, make them real to us. We invite the Holy Spirit to search our lives and to point out areas we need to give over to you. In your blessed name we pray, amen.